<laughs> Thanks, Gary. Gary uh, didn't mention he uh, is actually one of our local missionaries that Deer Creek has supported in the past. We're not going to be supporting him anymore in the future. <laughs> uh, good morning, everyone. Hey, I am Joseph. Uh, nice, good to see you all. Uh, if you were here with us last week, we started a brand new series uh, titled The River, the Desert, the Mission. And we're looking together as a church at some of these uh, early experiences that Jesus had, as scripture relates to us, as he uh, is launching into his public ministry. This three-year time period that we kind of know Jesus for, that we recognize him for. And uh, we're going to be looking together. Uh, last, last week we looked at the river together. We looked at a place where Jesus, kind of comically, you know, without any profound resume or list of accomplishments, no followers, had performed no miracles, and yet in the river we see that Jesus received this beautiful identity from God the Father, that he is God's son, and God loves him, and God's well-pleased with him. He's proud of him, and that's true of us as well in the river. We're going to look at the very next place that the story goes, looking at the beginning of Matthew chapter 4. So I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to dive in. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to worship as a church, to serve as a church, um, to gather here as a family, your family, God, a broken, a messy family, Lord, uh, but it is yours, and you love us so well. Lord, your love for your church is fierce. It's an amazing thing. So, God, we pray that you would, you would teach your church. Lord, you would, you would teach us, you would encourage us, you would challenge us this morning through your word, that, God, you would be our teacher today. So, Lord, soften our hearts. Um, take away anxieties, fears, concerns, things that distract, and let us focus our, our heart, soul, and mind completely on you. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen. Well, every single year, hundreds of thousands, millions of parents, aunts, uncles, grandmas, grandpas do something pretty crazy. They gird up their loins and they decide to take their kids to Disney World. <sighs> the Magic Kingdom, happiest place on earth. I think we have a photo here. Yeah, I'm, and to be fair, whether you're a theme park person or not, you have to admit, Disney is a top flight organization. I mean, they are all about creating a wonderful, magical, magical experience for the whole family. Kind of stressful for parents, particularly stressful getting there, especially if you're uh, road tripping it, uh, the thought of road tripping to Disney World, with the thought, the anticipation, the excitement of, look at this amazing place, the Magic Kingdom, happiest place on earth, that's where we're going to go. But we have to get there first. If you've, uh, if you've ever been to Disney World, especially if you're road tripping from the East Coast, you have to take I-95. Uh, I-95 is the, the massive interstate, runs all the way from Canada, the Canadian border, all the way to Miami. Uh, and you have all the normal difficulties of any road trip, right? You have cranky kids, you got arguing over the radio, bad fast food, you got cranky kids. Like you got a lot of stuff going on that you're having to put up with as parent. But if you're on I-95 heading down to Disney World, trying to get to the happiest place on earth, the Magic Kingdom, there's another difficulty you have to face, tourist traps. Now, there's one particular tourist trap to be specific. That is uh, probably, the, in my opinion, the king of all tourist traps. It's a little place called South of the Border. Now, if you know of South of the Border, if you've heard of has anyone ever heard of South of the Border? I'm just, oh my, wow, a lot of you. Okay, you know that this is a grade A tourist trap. This is a dumpy, gimmicky, pretty honestly culturally insensitive Mexico-themed uh, theme park, and I'm using that term really generously, really generously. It's right there at the North Carolina-South Carolina border. Of course, it would be in South Carolina. And if you were here last week... <laughs> I am sorry. I've been ripping on South Carolina a lot. Is anyone here from South Carolina? I'm just curious. Oh, I am so sorry. I am so sorry you had to grow up there. Well, we can talk after service. Um, I really am just teasing. A little. Um, 
But south of the border is this cheap, it's this gimmicky little theme park uh, that you pass along the way. Now, as cheap and dumpy as it is, they have a fantastic marketing campaign. They have over 300 billboards dotting all along I-95, north and south, every which way, that you cannot get to Disney World without passing. And all these signs are trying to do, they're trying to sell you on how great south of the border is. And they're trying to tempt you, forget Disney World, forget this trip. We have a theme park right here. Come check us out. Now, some of these signs are, are kind of cute. They're kind of winsome. You know, they like puns. I think we have one up here. Time for a pause south of the border, 17 miles. You know, oh, maybe it is time for a pause. We have been in the car for a while. So, some of the signs are pretty aggressive. Um, keep yelling, kids. They'll stop. Because <laughs> that's the kind of sign you want to see as you're driving with your kids is signs that encourage them to yell on a long road trip. Some of the signs are just a little weird. They get oddly prophetic. Uh, we have another one here. Everything old is new again. South of the border, 25 miles. I don't even know what that means in the context of a, of a, of a theme park. But they, everything old is new again. Uh, they, they try to be multicultural. They try to uh, <laughs> draw some biblical language. Shalom! Why? <laughs> but you're eight miles away. Check out South of the Border. 300 of these signs. And so whether you're just worn down by the drive, worn down by the headaches, worn down by the cranky arguing kids, uh, you, you start to wonder as a driver, do I need to go that extra 500 miles to get to the ha- uh, happiest place on earth, to get to the Magic Kingdom? I mean, that, that's a theme park. There's a theme park right here, eight miles away. It's so close. Maybe we could just stop here. So against your better judgment, you and the whole family, you take the exit, you give in to temptation, and then you see it in all of its glory. (laughs) Oh, that's not that impressive. (laughs) That's not worth all the 300 signs of build-up and the anticipation. As you pull into south of the border, and it's, it's kind of depressing... It's not a fun place to be. You're looking around. Well, like, this is a theme park, right? Like, there has to be some rides. They have a ride. They have a ride called the Spinning Sombrero, which is just a rustier, slower version of the teacups, kind of ripped straight off from Disney World. Um, the only line that you're going to find there, there's no lines, which is nice, except the line to leave. People cannot wait to get out of here. You're sitting there, and you're like, how in the world did I end up here? We were going to go to the happiest place on earth. We were going to go to the Magic Kingdom, and we ended up at south of the border? Why are we here? How long do we have to stay here? Believe it or not, I promise, this actually connects to the Bible in some way. <laughs> Take my word for it. This is actually the exact same sentiment that Jesus almost certainly felt right after his, his experience in the river. If you were here with us last week, I'm just going to recap this really fast. This is Matthew 3, verses 16 17. These are beautiful, exciting, visionary verses. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. This is verse 16, Matthew 3. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him, landing on him. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all united together right there in the river, and a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love, and with him I am well pleased. I'm proud of him. You want to talk about launching into a ministry? This is what people have been waiting for. This is the moment. The heavens are opening. We have this proclamation of the Messiah's identity. This is Jesus basking in the fullness of God's love. He hasn't done anything. He hasn't performed any miracles yet. He doesn't have any followers yet. But God tells him beyond the shadow of a doubt that he is his father's son, and he loves him, and his father is proud of him. That's how you start a ministry. That's how you get things going with a bang. Let's go. Where, all right, God, where are we going to go next? Where are we going to go from the river? Matthew 4, verse 1, the very, literally the very next verse. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness 
to be tempted by the devil. Wait, are, are you serious? Wait, that, that's not exciting. We were going to go do something huge and amazing. We were going to go to the happiest place. We're the magic kingdom. God is breaking into this. We were going to go somewhere incredible. And you lead Jesus into the wilderness. Why? Why would you do this, God? Well, let's make one thing really clear. This wasn't just circum- circumstances that led Jesus into the wilderness. It wasn't bad luck. It wasn't that Jesus made some poor life decisions that led him into the wilderness. It was the very Spirit of God. This verse makes it abundantly clear. The very same Spirit of God that was with him in the river is the one that leads him into the desert, that leads him into the wilderness. And he does it with a very particular mission in mind. God is at work in powerful ways. Guys, God is at work in beautiful ways, even in the desert especially in the desert. That's what we're talking about this morning. Now, if you're anything like me, you've probably launched into something in your life before. You've probably launched into something with a lot of excitement. Maybe it's a new job, maybe it's a new relationship, uh, buying a new home. uh, You know, it could be anything that you've launched into and you're like, this is exciting. This is bold. This This is a vision for the future that I have for myself. And then one day you wake up and you look around and you say, this is not where I expected to be. Maybe even start making comparisons to say, well, everyone else looks like they're in the magic kingdom, the happiest place on earth, but here I am stuck south of the border. How long do I have to be here? Why am I here? Maybe you thought you, as you launched in your career, that you'd be running the business by now, and you're not even working for the business. You're you're unemployed. that's That's a difficult place to be. You thought that your family would be set. You thought you'd have X number of kids by this time your age, and you've been battling infertility for years and years. We launch into things full of hope, full of vigor, and often God leads us to places we didn't expect to be, maybe even places we didn't want to be. We see him do that with Jesus, and yet we see God show up in beautiful ways. We see him show us what it means to be a follower of God, not just in the river, but in the desert. So we're going to look at a series of temptations that Jesus goes through, because not only does Jesus... Uh, go through this difficult season in this difficult place, this exhausting, frustrating place. But he actually experiences temptation while he's there, which, again, I think most of us, many of us can relate to, is this feeling of when we're in a, a, a difficult season, a trying season, an exhausting season, we feel temptation acutely during those seasons. So we're going to keep reading here. We're going to read just a few of these temptations that Jesus is subjected to. So after the Spirit of God leads him into the wilderness, this is verses 2 and 3. We see what Jesus is doing there. He says, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Jesus was hungry. It's probably an understatement of the century, right? He's, he's almost certainly very, very hungry while he's there. And as he has followed the Spirit of God being led in, into the desert, as he has gone there, he's, he's participating in a, in a spiritual discipline known as fasting. Uh, fasting, you can fast from different things. It doesn't have to be food, but he's, it's this, in the essence of fasting is that it's self-denial. You're saying, God, I want to trust you. I want to trust that you will provide for me. I want to trust that you will take care of me, not these things. So Jesus sets aside foods. He's following the Spirit of God. He's fasting. He's engaging in spiritual discipline. And in the midst of that, in the midst of following God, even to a difficult and trying place, he starts to undergo temptation. So verse 3 tells us that, tells us that the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. 
the tempter, Satan, the devil, whatever terminology we want to use. The scripture here describes him as the tempter. And we're going to be looking actually at a series of three temptations in the desert that Jesus is subjected to. But there's a universal pattern for these temptations. Actually, one I think that applies to any temptations we experience in life, whether it's during a difficult season or a not as difficult season. But these are the two, uh, two things that I think that temptation always seeks to do. The first one is this. Temptation always seeks to undermine our relationship with God. Notice the very first word that Satan says to Jesus. If. It's a condition. If you are the Son of God, prove it. Prove you're the Son of God. I know what happened in the river. I know God says he loves you. I know he said you're his son. I know he says he's proud of you. Prove it, though. I'm not buying it yet. Turn these stones into bread. And as far as miracles go, I mean, that's not like a super... I mean, you're the Messiah. That's not a super difficult uh, miracle. Why can't... I mean, you know... That's like a level one miracle, right? You have level 10, okay, that's bringing someone back from the dead. Level five, calming a storm, walking on water. This is like a tier one, tier two maybe miracle. It's like water into wine kind of thing. It's not that difficult. Prove it, Jesus. If you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. Is it sinful to turn stones into bread? Are there commandments against turning stones into bread? Not, not, not that I'm aware of. Not, not that I've ever read. He's not tempting him even to do an evil thing a sinful thing in of itself, but he's tempting him to put his needs, his own desires, and to use the messianic powers that he's been given for his own good, not for the will of the Father. Prove that you're good enough. Temptation always seeks to undermine our relationship with God. Uh, we, we see this when we steal from others, when, when we're tempted to steal and to take something to provide for ourselves. We say, God, I'm not trusting you to provide for me. I, wanna, I need this thing. I need to take this for myself. Uh, if someone cuts itself in traffic, uh, you know, we, we're tempted. We want to be the arbiters of justice, right? We want to execute justice. We want to execute that person who cut us off. God, I'm not going to trust you to be just. I want to be just. I want to punish this person. Temptation always seeks to undermine our relationship with God. The second thing that temptation always seeks to do is to take something good and to make it God. Pay really close attention to this because this happens all the time in our lives. Satan is always trying to take something that appeals to us to distort it. Read how Jesus responds when he quotes scripture. Jesus responds to this first temptation, and each of his temptations is part of the pattern as well. He responds by quoting God's truth, by quoting scripture. So Jesus answers, verse 4, it is written, and he's quoting Deuteronomy, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, Notice what Jesus doesn't say here. Jesus doesn't say bread is sinful. Jesus doesn't say bread is bad. He's not, he's not making some sweeping pro-Atkins diet claim. He's not saying he's never going to eat bread ever again for the rest of his life. Um, he doesn't say even that his feelings of hunger, his desire for bread is wrong and they should be ignored or subjugated or kind of pushed to the side. He doesn't say any of those things. He doesn't say that bread isn't important. He just says that bread isn't everything. Temptation always appeals to something good and makes it bad. And Jesus is actually tempted to do this. You want to know how we know Jesus is tempted to do this? It says it right there. He was tempted. The tempter came and tempted him to turn stones into bread. You cannot be tempted to do something that doesn't appeal to you, right? Jesus actually did desire this. He did desire bread. He was the perfect sinless son of God, but he desired. It's not sinful to be tempted, but you cannot tempt someone with something that doesn't appeal to them, right? You can't, you can't tempt me with a punch in the face. Uh, no thanks, I'll pass. Keep that to yourself. You, you, you can't, everyone think of like your least favorite food in the world, like the food that if they served it at lunch today or you had it as lunch of fame, you'd be like, oh, not that, anything but that. 
For me, onions, hands down. You cannot tempt me with onions. You want to know why? Bad parenting, that's why. When I was three years old, I, would, I have this vivid memory of going out to a Mexican restaurant with my family, and my dad would get the, the grilled fajitas, and all these veggies come out, and everything comes out there, and little three-year-old Joseph munching on my taco, uh, watching my daddy, and my dad would always grab the longest grilled onion he could find, and he would hold it up in front of me. And he would say, hey, Joseph, do you know what this is? And my eyes would be wide, and I'd look at him and say, no, Dad, but I love you and trust you. Tell me what it is. Tell me. And my dad would say, it's a grilled toenail. I know, right? That's traumatic for a kid. That's not, I can't eat onions because I think toenails every single, I'm sorry, I probably just ruined onions for every single one of you. Parents, if you take anything from this sermon, you just have one additional way just to mess with your kids, just to mess with them. (laughs) Make them pickier eaters than they already are. The point is, there is a point, you can't tempt someone with something that doesn't appeal to them. So Satan tempts Jesus with something good that appeals to his appetite. Having an appetite isn't sinful. Hear that loud and clear. What's one of the most universal signs of illness for any person, any animal? Loss of appetite, lack of appetite. It's a sign of lack of health. We are supposed to have appetites. We're supposed to desire these good things that God has created, but we are not supposed to make these good things God. Have you ever been tempted in your appetites? When you're in the midst of a difficult, trying season, say you had an awful day at work, what what do you run to? What appeals to you? Is it food? Do you just want to, I just got to scarf down as many calories as I can so I can zone out, so I can get away from these things? Is it drink? Is it alcohol? These are good things that God has created, but they're they're not God. They are not everything. (laughs) I know this is awkward, and this is like another sermon series. Is it sex? We have desires for sex. God created sex. It is a good thing, and yet it is not our God. Despite what our culture would say, despite what even our sinful, twisted desires would say when we're tempted to make it God, temptation always takes something good and tries to make it God. Takes something good and tries to say it's everything. This is where we see that the good things that God has created, the blessings that God has created, have actually become a curse when we lift the created above the creator. That is what happens in temptation. So th- this is the pattern we're going to kind of walk through for the, the rest of it. I kind of wanted to sit with that there in the beginning, just so we're all there. Temptation always undermine, seeks to undermine our relation with God, and it always seeks to take something good and make it God. So we're going to move forward. So Satan is rebuffed. Jesus uh, quotes scripture, says, No, uh, man does not live by bread alone. So then we keep reading verse, uh, chapter, verse, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Satan takes a different approach. He tempts him in a different way. Verse 5, Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him, had Jesus, stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, same phrase, right? Temptation always attacks our relationship with God. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written... He will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Satan quotes scripture. Sit with that for a second. All right? Like that's, whoa, we're going to talk about that a little bit later on. But Satan quotes scripture, Jesus. He's tempting him with scripture. Improperly understood, improperly applied scripture, but he's quoting him with scripture. Now Satan brings him to the center of Jerusalem. He brings him to the temple. Why? What's he tempting him with here? I, I I would say that he's tempting him with uh, an appeal to it for approval. 
If you want to start an exciting ministry, you want to start a messianic movement, holy city, Jerusalem, temple. That's where the movers and shakers are. That's where the power is. That's where every single influential person that could join your movement, that could contribute in some way, that's where they are. They're not fishermen off to the side. No, they're right there. These are the Pharisees and Sadducees. These are the people you want on your side. And you want them on your side? You know a good way to get their attention? Jump. Jump off of here and just float on down and let his angels catch you. You don't think that would garner some attention? Do you think that would get people's approval? It would certainly get mine. It would certainly draw my attention. So Satan is trying to say, you need the approval of these people. You need to win them over. If you're going to fulfill this mission, if you are the son of God, there it is, undermining his relation with God again, he takes something good and tries to make it God approval. And Jesus answers him, verses, uh, chapter 4, verse 7, also quotes Deuteronomy once again. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Second thing temptation does is it tries to take this good thing approval and make it everything is approval a bad thing it really isn't in its essence living for other people's approval that's a bad thing Uh, setting other people's approval before god's approval is a bad thing but being well approved of isn't in of itself a bad thing actually if you look at the qualifications to be an elder in the church first timothy 3 one of the qualifications to be an elder is actually you need to be well approved of you need to be well thought of by those within the church and also those outside the church are you accurately winsomely representing Jesus to the people you meet that aren't followers of him. Approval can be a wonderful thing, but it's not everything. It's not God. Do you find yourself living for other people's approval? Are you devastated when someone's angry with you? Or how about even just like not even something so direct confrontational? What about when someone forgets your name? What about when someone doesn't give you credit for the assignment or or the project you completed but instead gives it to someone else. Does that devastate you? Does that strike at you? Does that tempt you? It does me. Do you ever find it difficult to trust in God's approval, not just man's, but God's approval? To actually trust and believe in the fact that you, in Christ you are God's child and he loves you and he's proud of you like we studied last week in the river? Are you tempted to doubt that? Jesus was tempted in this way too, yet he did not sin. It's Hebrews 4. We're going to talk about that again in a little bit. Jesus is tempted in every single way that we are yet without sin. So lastly, we see Satan go all in. He tries, he tries to mix up his approach a little bit. He tries to tempt Jesus with ambitions. We've seen a, a, a temptation for appetite. We've seen a temptation for approval. Now he tries to tempt Jesus with his ambition. And you should know the pattern by now, right? We're getting familiar with this pattern. So this is uh, chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Again, the devil took Jesus, took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all of their splendor. And Satan said this to him, All this I will give to you if you will bow down and worship me. What is one, what's the first thing that temptation always seeks to do? Undermine your relationship with God. Notice, he doesn't, he doesn't start with the, if you are the son of God anymore. He, he's, not, he's not even trying to play that game with Jesus anymore. He knows he is. He knows that Jesus is the son of God. He's appealing to him directly to, to undermine his relationship with God. Not if, you don't prove anything, just bow down and worship me. This is the essence of idolatry, right? Worship the created above the creator. Forget this God who's led you into the desert, this God who's led you to this place of suffering and this place of difficulty. Forget him and worship me instead. Look what I can give you. 
Look what I can do for you. Look what you can feel and you can experience. You can enjoy all of these things. And it's not going to cost you anything. Just come and worship me. It undermines his relationship. It seeks to undermine his relationship with God. And it seeks to take something good, ambition, and tries to make it God. Now, have you ever wanted to accomplish something, to achieve something, to stand for something? Here's the deal. Jesus did too. Jesus surely did. He knew that there was a purpose to his life. He knew that all the power and the authority in heaven and earth would be entrusted to him. We should see him proclaim this to his disciples. Matthew 28, we were looking at the very beginning, right before Jesus uh, starts his public ministry. This is actually at the conclusion of his public ministry. Gathered with his disciples, following his resurrection, Matthew 28, verse 18, the Great Commission, when he's sending them out to proclaim the gospel. Jesus says this to them. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This is probably one of the most ambitious mission statements ever uttered. But it was ambition firmly rooted on who God is and on his will alone. It wasn't selfish. It wasn't sinful. It wasn't idolatrous. Like the, like the ambition that Satan's offering. It wasn't an ambition of shortcuts which again, I feel like we feel the temptation towards so often. I feel the temptation towards so often to take a shortcut to achieve the thing that I think I'm called to. No, this was an ambition of total sacrifice, of total trust in the will of God, the Father, for our good and for God's glory. That's the ambition that Jesus represents. But Satan is trying to give him an altar. Forget the desert. Forget the cross. Take the shortcut. You deserve it. And here's the deal. He does. He does deserve it. Satan's not arguing that anymore. If, he's not saying if. He knows that Jesus deserves this. But take a shortcut. Forget the desert. Forget the cross. You can have it all with no cost. Just like before, Jesus responds. He quotes scripture. Jesus replies to him. He says, away from me, Satan. For it is written, he quotes Deuteronomy again, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Worship the creator, not the created. Verse 11 says, the devil then left him and angels came and attended to him. God met him in the desert and provided for him everything that he needed. We see Jesus tempted in his ambition. Is ambition sinful? No, it's not. And I know this is probably of the three. It's probably the weirdest one. Ambitions like appetite or approval can be twisted to become sinful. They can become our God. The desire to change the world for good, to reach people for the sake of God's kingdom, that's ambitious. Scripture tells us, Philippians 2, to avoid selfish ambition, to do nothing out of selfish ambition. It's when our personal ambitions and our personal desires to accomplish things for our glory and not God's, that's when ambition becomes sinful. Amen. Often by taking shortcuts, and Jesus does not take the shortcut, even though he deserves to. If anyone deserved to take a shortcut and avoid the cross, it was Jesus so this passage ends with Jesus winning the stunning victory in the desert. He hasn't just learned and, uh, and been tested with survival skills. Pardon me for this. He's, guys, he's developed th thrival skills. Yeah, I know, that's awful. But he, seriously, think about it. He's, he's learned skills. He has developed in such a way, his character has developed in such a way that he, he's empowered for the entirety of the rest of his ministry by going through the desert, by going through the wilderness. It launches him into ministry in a way that just the river could not have. And actually, we read this. This is confirmed for us in Scripture. Luke 4, it's just a parallel passage. Luke 4, verse 1, we, same thing we read before. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan, left the river, and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, into the desert. That's verse 1. Jump ahead to Luke 
4.14, when he's leaving the wilderness, it says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Power of the Spirit that was gained where? Just in the desert. It's gained through trusting God the Father in the desert. And news about him spread through the whole countryside. What does this mean for us? Well, relationally, it means something. It means that when we worship God, uh, it, uh, it means that he is in the eternal character formation business. It means that he is wholeheartedly dedicated to forming us into the image of Jesus, even through trials, even through difficult circumstances. Practically, it also means as a follower of Jesus, we should expect to follow Jesus where he went. We shouldn't be surprised when we end up in the desert because Jesus ended up in the desert. And it wasn't an accident. It wasn't coincidence. It wasn't just bad circumstances and poor decisions. God led him there. He might be leading you or me into a wilderness. The good news is this, that even if God leads us into the desert, it, we worship a God who is personally willing to go to every single place and through every single trial that he's leading us into. He goes with us. He goes for us. We follow him there. So what do we do? For, what do we do? What is our response to this? The first thing we need to do, we need to brace for temptation. We, we just need to expect, Jesus wasn't surprised when he was tempted in the desert. He, he was firmly rooted on God's will God's, uh, and God's will alone. But we need to brace for temptation. So we need to know what tempts us. Is it your appetite? Is it the desire for stuff and for things, for food, for drink, for, for consuming? Is that where we're most often tempted? Is it approval? Is it what people think of us or what they don't think of us or getting credit for things? Is it ambition? Is it our award, awards, our accolades, our title, our legacy even? Is that where we are most often tempted? For me, it's approval. Uh, I would say probably 80% of the time for me, it, I'm most often tempted in places of approval. Uh, I have this really, really odd story. When I was in high school, I was 18 years old and uh, met with a career counselor. A lot of high schoolers do this. And so you take all these tests and you're okay, what kind of career should I go into? And they interview you a lot. I got to the end of it and nothing was really clear at all, which is probably like most high schoolers anyway. But uh, I remember sitting there with this career counselor. She asked me, she asked me like the trump card questions, what they always ask. Like, Joseph, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? And I, my response was really sad, but it was really honest. And I said, I don't care what I do. I just want people to applaud for me when I'm done doing it. That's like super embarrassing. I know. That's like, yeah. Yeah, it's like trademark narcissist. I know. I know. I know. Yeah, by the way, I shared this with the staff during like a staff training to illustrate a point. And, you know, and uh, at, the end of, uh, and at the end of the training, uh, all the staff just started slow clapping for me. <laughs> so don't do that. That doesn't help me. That's not good for me. <laughs> But know where you're tempted. Know how you are going to be tempted. Because brace for it, it will happen. Quick diagnostic test. Million dollars. It's a fun question. You had a million dollars. What are you going to do with it? Are you going to go out and buy a ton of nice stuff? You might be tempted by appetite, by your desires, by consumption. Are you, are you going to take all your friends on a world-class trip touring the world and have just an absolute blast? And they're going to marvel at how generous you are, how noble you are might be approval. Are you going to take that money? I want to invest it. I want to create a legacy for myself. I want my kids to have you know, a trust fund. Or I want you know, X, Y, and Z. I want to create my own business, my own brand, whatever it may be, so that people remember me forever. It might be ambition. Know how you will be tempted. Brace for temptation. Consider this question for yourself. 
Where is Satan going to try to undermine your relationship with God and take something good and to make it God in your life? That's the first one. The second one is this battle with truth. Every single time that, Je- that Satan tempts Jesus, he does it with half-truths, not flat-out lies. That's a really important point for every single follower of Jesus. Stones the bread. It's not a sinful thing. Trust God to catch you. He quotes scripture. Trust God to catch you. All the kingdoms of the earth will be yours. That's the end goal of Jesus' ministry. He's not telling Jesus anything. That's a flat-out falsehood. Satan delights in telling five-minute lies. I'm stealing this from a, from a youth speaker named Runks Runkles, which, oh, youth speakers, they're the worst. Anyway, that's a joke because I'm, anyway, don't worry about it. <laughs> don't worry about it. Anyway, but his name's Runks Runkles, and he talks about how Satan always tells us five-minute lies. How, if, and think of it right now. It's, it's, it's 11.03. Everyone's kind of doing the, the over-the-shoulder over check with the clock. So it's 11.03 right now. If I came to you and said, oh, hey, guys, just so you know, it's 11.03 p.m. at night right now, would any of you believe me? I would hope not. No, of course it's not. We know it's not 11 p.m. at night. We know it's not late at night. What if I said it was 11.10? Would you believe me? You might. You might if you didn't know actually what time it was. What about then if I told you it was 11.15? Then it's 11.20. The clock keeps turning. Satan delights in telling five-minute lies. He never comes at us and tells us straight up, go kick puppies. Go, go rob an elderly person. He doesn't do that, typically. That's not, that's not tempting for us. He loves tempting us with five-minute lies. He loves taking something good and making it God. So battle with truth. Know God's word inside and out and rightly apply it to your life. And that's true when I'm speaking up here, when Dwayne is speaking up here. I hope that you're listening, but I also hope that you take everything we say and you run it through the filter of God's word and you say, all right, what is the truth? And does this align with what God has said about who he is and how we are called to live in light of that. Battle with truth. The last thing, bask in the river. When you fail, and you will, I do, you do, but when we fail, we need to bask in the river. Oscar Wilde wrote, uh, he said, I can resist anything except temptation. (laughs) Can any of you relate to that? I feel that. I can resist anything except temptation. When you fail, when you fall short, when you are tempted to give up, when you feel like you are withering in the desert, run to the river. Bask in the river. Soak in the river. Remember that in Christ, you are God's children. You are his son. You are his daughter. Your dad loves you. Your dad is proud of you. Bask in the river. When you're tempted to compare and say, why is everyone else at Disney World and I'm stuck here at south of the border? Everyone else looks like they're the happiest place on earth and I'm just waiting to leave this place. Bask in the river. Remember that even when you fail, even when you fall short, even when you feel like giving up, Jesus was there as well. He was tempted in every way like us but did not sin. We're going we're gonna to close with this. This is Hebrews 4. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. That is our hope. That is the hope we carry with us. When we're in the river, Jesus is our hope. When we're in the desert, Jesus is our hope. Only him. you pray with me? Father, I pray for the people in this congregation now. 
I pray for those who are going through uh, unemployment. I uh, pray for those who are going through illness, Lord. I know we have many people in our church right now who are battling illness and cancer. They're in the desert right now, God. Uh, many of us feel like we are in the desert, and we're tempted, and we're tried, and we're tired, and we feel like giving in or giving out. Um, we feel like giving up. Lord, thank you that we have a Savior to hold on to named Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that we have a Savior, not just one that is strong and powerful and good because he is all those things, but there, we have a Savior that we can empathize with, that empathizes with us, that knows our tears, that knows our sorrows, knows our heartache and our pain, and is with us in the desert. Lord, go before us. Guard us against temptation. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I told you not to do that.